Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Dr. Simon, and I have just been joined by uh, Jim Gottstein, who uh, has been on my show a number of times before. And I just want to open the show and then uh, open the mic up to Jim and anybody else who might call in. And I hope that other people will call in. And I'm getting feedback. Um, okay. Uh, when most of my career, I worked out, I taught and I worked outpatient. Uh, I worked in clinics and a private practice. I had very, very little uh, to do with working with people who had been hospitalized. And when I began to become more and more critical of the medical model and the whole concept of mental illness, uh, I finally came up with the thought, maybe 20 years ago, I should put psychotherapy, the therapy word within psychotherapy, in quotes. Because... As Thomas Zoss beautifully wrote, the um, word mental illness is a metaphor. And it's a metaphor for really unwanted behavior. Almost any behavior that seems strange, uh, that could be destructive or self-destructive, can be labeled an an illness, a mental disease, or uh, as later it became a a disorder, a disorder of the mind. These are moral judgments that pose as medical problems. And when I began to write, increasingly, I began to write and put the word patient in quotations. Because if psychotherapy is a metaphor, if mental illness is a metaphor, and I put it in quotes, then therapy is metaphorical therapy, and the person I'm working with is a metaphorical patient. Uh, I don't have to go into the whole history. I do that in my book, and there are many other books. By the way, there's a book coming out soon. Uh, For anybody who follows my show, go back into the archive. And a few months ago, I did an interview with uh, Dr. Chuck Rubio, Ruby, Please forgive me, Rubio. I had him on my mind today. Um, uh, Chuck Ruby called Smoke and Mirrors. And the book will be out soon, and hopefully I can interview him when the book comes out and write a review of it. Uh, I have already read a PDF of of the book uh, before it's published, but I want to reread it. Um, And go into Smoke and Mirrors, because he really does what I do and demolishes the medical model. I mean, thoroughly in a variety of ways. What I never really did until uh, uh, later in my career was really work without patients who had been hospitalized. And the stories of their hospitalization were really ghastly. Uh, by the way, uh, you could go online and put in Mad in America, another wonderful book written by Robert Whitaker. And he's written subsequent books, and he has a whole organization that really deals with the, the horror of what happens psychologically to people, economically and psychologically, once they go into a mental health facility or a mental hospital. And mental health facilities uh, never talk about mental health. Whatever mental health is remains invisible. It's mental illness that's talked about. And everybody, in one way or another, can be diagnosed and is diagnosed as mentally ill. What I never did until just recently was talk about hospital and put them in quotes. A real hospital deals with real medical problems, and a mental hospital is not a real hospital. It is a hospital 
that should be put in quotes because it's not dealing with real illness. It's dealing with metaphorical mental illnesses. Jim, is that clear? I mean, am I being logical? Oh, oh yes. I mean, I would also say, uh, I mean, uh, you emailed this morning about what the column and psych survivors uh, call them psychoprisons a lot because that's what they are. And, in fact, if you look at the definition of inmate, it'll say someone confined in a in a prison or a hospital. So they're yeah, they're really uh prisons. Although you know in some ways they might be better right. than regular prisons, in some ways worse. So so then the issue is if they're but not everybody is imprisoned there. People do voluntarily go into these institutions. <laughs> I wonder what percentage. And, By the way, then, uh, yeah, go ahead. And then, you know, I mean, my experience is really with the involuntary system, you know, almost right. exclusively. But I, I am very familiar with people in, in the that sign in, quote, voluntarily, but are not allowed out. Um, and so... Uh, you know, I just wonder how many are there tr- truly voluntarily. I know, you right. know, some are, but, uh, you know, who would, you know, I mean, what you describe as uh, what happens in these places or, or will um, makes you wonder why anybody would stay there voluntarily. Right. Uh, and now with, with, with the, the, the pandemic, uh, reports are coming out about how uh, the, the lack of real medical care for many of the individuals in these institutions and the rate of disease transmission seems to be similar to the rate of disease transmission in prisons. So the idea that these really are not hospitals, they really have very little to do with medical problems. And many of the people who I did work with when I was at Flushing, so in the 1970s, they had a process called deinstitutionalization. And a lot of the people who were uh, removed from the hospital were removed after years of being there and have been heavily drugged and damaged by the drugs. And a lot of these individuals had no place to go and became homeless. And some of them fell into crime, uh, uh, became criminal activities in order to survive, petty stuff but still annoying and difficult for people to deal with. Um, the, the whole notion, though, of being imprisoned on a psychological level has something else to it. Once an individual really thinks of themselves as permanently damaged, that they have to take these drugs that, that reduce the dopamine in the brain and make them really function on a whole different level and not a better level in most cases, they are now imprisoned from in the inside. And I think, Jim, that's one of the reasons when people go in there, they will try not to leave because they don't have another place to go. And I was hoping some people would come on the show, and I will do this again uh, if I can get more people to come on. Uh, where do people go if they're having a significant emotional crisis other than a hospital? In other words, they can't really live on their own. Their families are scared. The families want them out of the house because they represent a difficulty on a number of levels to the life of the family. Um, But they become imprisoned psychologically. Yeah. You want to say, Jim? Well, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about this because I have a lot of experience and uh, in this area, and many people would rather be homeless than in a psych hospital. Yes, um, I understand that. And, yes, yeah, and so, um, so that's that's an issue. I totally agree with you about families. And one of the huge problems is that um, there really are no um, basically safe, humane places, or very few safe, humane places. Uh, for people to go and um, you know if you uh, you know read I mean I don't know if you're familiar with Michael Cornwall um, he's no a psychologist but I will, I'll make myself 
in the Bay Area, and he's a blogger, blogger on Mad in America. Uh, and I think his first blog was about how you know he went crazy when he was, um, you know, uh, co- you know, college age. I think early college age, which is a fairly typical time, and I have my theory about that. But he, you know, he he luckily got through it, and he. He was allowed to, you know, be in his grandmother's basement, as I recall, and he worked, you know, he worked through it. Um, and so, uh, you know, people, anyway, I've, I've got a lot of thoughts, but um, it's a huge problem that there's no uh, humane place where people want to go. Right, right. Uh, you, when I first got involved, with the uh, 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 well, before ISEPP was that it was ICSPP, which was an organization started by Peter Bregan, who did a lot of writing uh, critical of the psychiatric drugging of people, and uh, I was involved instrumentally in creating that. It was either two thousand four and five or three and four. I don't remember the conferences that we had. And at that time, there was a psychiatrist, Lauren Moshe, uh, who passed away, who had created something called Soteria House, which was exactly what I think it was supposed to be, a humane place where people in crisis could try to work out some of the problems that that they were involved in. And by the way, let me add this, because this is so important. When people are go crazy, and I like the word crazy in a lot of ways, because from the outside, it's crazy. From the inside of the person going crazy, sometimes they know they're crazy, and sometimes they're just desperate. Most of what really psychotherapy is good for are individuals whose behavior that gets them into trouble with themselves and others is what they desperately do to resolve the psychological pain related to events in their life. Parenting that's cruel or, or abuse, uh, poverty, or um, emotional neglect. When people don't know what to do, they sometimes do really desperate things, and then they get caught up in something, and they don't know how to get out of it. Therapy is good for that. You know, the model of this, um, when, when the towers were hit in in uh, 2001, terrible event. A young couple in one of the towers held hands and jumped out together. I don't know what their relationship was. I assume they were either friends or maybe lovers or maybe even married. Much of what we call mental illness is exactly that. I'm faced with a choice of burning to death or I jump. And when people don't have help and can't find the direction to work through the crisis that they're in, they very often put themselves in more difficulty than they want to or know how to deal with. And I think that is, is an element that's so important because most of the people I work with who were released at Flushing Hospital, which we became the outpatient uh, for people who had been released uh, from Creedmoor, which was a big state mental facility. I don't know. I'm sure the buildings are still there, but the, the, I, I don't know how many residents or, or inmates they have uh, in that place. But these individuals, as the years went by, most of them were not in the same kind of crazy distress they were when they ended up being hospitalized and diagnosed. And the thing that held many of them back from benefiting from therapy was, one, the attitude of many of the practitioners I work with, which was they are damaged and they can never really do anything except take their medicine or their drugs, because it's, it's metaphorical medicine, take their drugs and stay out of stress. And I write about a lot of these people in my book, people who were told by their doctors 
no, you can't really look for a job. You can't go back to school. You can't really do anything that's going to put you under stress because it's going to create anxiety, depression, and other symptoms to exacerbate your mental illness. Last week, I did a show about what's going on with people are being told that under the stress of the pandemic, they can either become mentally ill or if they are mentally ill, they should call their psychiatrist and up the level of their medication. It's a terrible trap. Um, and, and therefore, the idea that it's hopeless is a lie, that being so-called crazy. Most people who are crazy, if they get the right situation for themselves and that they could work it through, if they're not abandoned and convinced that they're damaged, live good lives. The evidence is that's 80%. And we and we have a say that again. Sorry, Jim. So the evidence is that that eighty percent of the people that become psychotic can be you know get through it and become better, you know, recover or whatever you want to call it, and get on with their lives. But that our system of drugging everybody reduces the recovery rate to five percent. Right, and I, by the way, it. Not just the drugging. I know how bad those drugs are, but it's the internalization of the belief that I have something so profoundly wrong with me that I really have to follow the regimen of taking the drugs and avoiding situations that are challenging. It's a yeah, terrible, terrible thing. So I think it's the whole thing. And I would imagine that those people who are become longer-term inmates in, in the so-called mental hospitals who are imprisoned, that the recovery rate is very, very poor because that reinforces over and over again that you are damaged goods. You're, just, you're not capable of living the kind of life that maybe at one point that you dreamed of and want to. Real problem. Jim? Yeah, I'm not sure what the question is. I mean, um, uh, you know, we can talk about, I mean, I'm not sure where you want to go from there. We can talk about soteria. We can talk about uh, open dialogue, you know, the pro approaches that, you know, have achieved this 80% recovery. Right. Uh, well, you rate. see, this is the issue. For me, and this really has become my, 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 the only professional thing I do uh, left. It's very interesting. At the end of uh, May, my license in Florida will, will uh, be suspended because I haven't taken the courses. Uh, every two years, I had to take 40 credits of uh, courses to maintain the license. And I've already given up my malpractice insurance. So I really don't have a professional um, role any longer. Um, I'm going to turn 80 in June, and boy, do I hope I can get out of the house by then. Um, this is my reason, and what I really want is to convince as much of the public as I can to stay the hell away from the psychiatric model. And if they find a psychotherapist, negotiate some kind of fee work out some kind of an arrangement where they don't get diagnosed. I don't know how many therapists, how many people who call themselves psychotherapists are really willing to go along with this because your economic and social survival in the, in the, in the profession depends upon your beginning every social, every relationship with somebody called a patient by calling them a patient, and how many? What's the percentage of people who have a private practice uh, or, or work in an in institution that would earn a living were they not to diagnose individuals with these phony phony labels? So that's what I want to do. I do my show, and I think that's where I want it to go. I want the system to collapse, Jim. Oh, I, I think it to we'd collapse. be far better. I think we'd be far better without psychiatric. Yes. I mean, one thing I might say is um, what you're talking about in terms of the psychotherapist, and you know, as, and then the patient. Um, 
can be contrasted with uh, kind of the, the peer support model. And the po- one of the powers of the peer support model is that you don't, if, if it's actually done properly, is you don't have that hierarchy, you know, where the, you know, one person supposedly is, you know, I don't know if you'd say better, but higher functioning or whatever. There's just, you know, really not, not the judgmental aspect of it. And right, there's just right. kind of the, the helping aspect and the ability to relate through, um, you know, kind of a shared experience, which is not to say um, that, I mean, I, I find you is really insightful into all this stuff, even though you, you don't have that um, actual experience. And can I say a couple of words about Lauren Moser, Dr. Moser? Please, please. So I, I um, you know, I found out about him uh, from Mad, reading Mad in America and contacted him. And I won't go through the whole story, but um, in my very first case with the Law Project for Psychiatric Rights, whose mission is to mount a strategic litigation campaign against forced psychiatric drugging and electroshock, known as psych rights, um, in my very first case, I uh, I wanted him to testify as an expert witness, and I emailed him. And these things come up really fast, um, and I didn't get a response. Finally, I called him, and he said, oh, Jim, I just got back from Germany. I'm jet lagged. It was going to be the next day. And he said, I, I just can't do it. And I said, okay, I understand. And then he said, all right, I'll do it. Um, so and, and and Lauren is was just so beloved by uh, uh, psychiatric survivors, and I'll give you uh, one of you know kind of a, a vignette about maybe why. And so in his and there's a lot in this testimony in the Myers case, but one of the things he said, well, I asked him. Now, do you have any uh, experience with people who are psychotic that are not on, you know, the drugs? And he said, oh, my Lord, I've probably been with more unmedicated uh, psychotics than anyone alive today. And then he said, and I find them among my most interesting customers. And right. so that that was the attitude that he had. That, you know, this um, – uh, I mean, I think he, you know, he basically loved everybody and loved, uh, you know, quote, the so, you know, his so-called patients. And, right. and another thing that he testified to was that in all his years of practice, he had never had to, he had never had to involuntarily commit anyone. And that if, you know, if there was a situation where someone was about to do grievous harm, of course he'd, you know, have to do something, you know, presumably call the police. But he'd never had to because he always was able to a establish a relationship and but more, more, uh, b uh, arrive at some kind of understanding or agreement with the person about you know how to proceed right right and what happens and- now is that they don't bother they they will not spend any time with anybody they'd say this is what we want you to do if you don't agree to it will force you. Right. right. But, but, you know, I want to respond to one thing. I mean, I remember meet, I met uh, uh, Lauren several times during the conference time, and I was really impressed by him. And he wrote a book afterwards that became my, one of my favorites. It was a book. Uh, he was very much into uh, Buddhism. Who, uh, I have a brother who, who had a crisis and ran away and and he ran away and ended up on the West Coast um, where he met a famous uh, Rinpoche, one of the Buddhist monks. And now he's a practicing Buddhist Jew, <laughs> more Buddhist in, in, in his attitudes, Jewish in his ethnicity. But anyway, uh, he wrote a book about, and I don't remember the title, I'm going to look it up. But it was a wonderful book, and I want to recommend it to uh, any of my listeners um, because it really was fabulous. It gave you an insight uh, that you don't get from the typical psychiatric story, that, that you're, this is it, and you follow. The other thing is I want to push back a little bit 
uh, I think peer groups are not only good, they're necessary. But a professional who doesn't diagnose, but who tries to teach in a, in a, with a psychotic manner, that is what I really think therapy is, is, is a dialogue that grows in a relationship. And it has to be the relationship. If there's no relationship, then it really becomes authoritarian. But I always felt that when I was a teacher, I helped more people than I did even as a therapist because I interacted with more people. And helping people understand the structure of their thinking, the difference between a judgment and a description, that if you teach somebody to describe themselves free of judgment, insights come and wonderful stuff happens. But we're so used to labeling ourselves or internalizing labels or giving labels to other people that act as a two-for-one job. That is, they seem to explain, but at the same time they judge. Uh, and, and you can explain or you can judge, but you can't do it at the same time. I didn't make that up. That was Niels Bohr, who was a famous physicist Ooh. and a friend of Albert Einstein. Um, you can judge, you can understand, but not at the same time. So I really feel that the role of a professional in a kind of a teaching capacity, and I don't know what to call that, because really I wasn't a professor of these individuals. I wasn't, my wife is coming up and she's doing, a, she doesn't play golf, but she's doing this golf stroke. <laughs> I have to find out what the heck she's about. But anyway, I, so I feel peers are important, but having some kind of knowledge that can be transmitted is also important as long as it's done authoritatively, but not in an authoritarian fashion. But that's, that's my thing. Anyway. Well, I don't know where to go with this now. I really don't. Um, just keep hammering away at it. By the way, I want to recommend to my listeners uh, the show I did with you a couple of, of, of – time goes so fast. It's crazy. Uh, a couple of months ago about the Zyprexa papers, which also opened my mind and will open theirs. And uh, they can look for that show uh, and listen to it because I thought that was really – also very interesting and very important in terms of educating the public as to the horror of what goes on in, in these trials. They're not even, they're, they're, they're kangaroo courts. You know, it's like Judge Roy Bean, hang them high. <laughs> and, and then you're in the hospital. They, they don't want to listen because everybody is so embedded in the belief that mental illnesses are real and they really exist. Right. Yeah. So, what else? So I think that I'm almost well, ready to. Go ahead. No, I'm ready. I'm ready to either go on to the next topic or end the show. And I want to turn on Nicole Wallace and see what uh, our crazy leader has done today. That, uh, or, or whether or not maybe we're going to get uh, universal testing going so we can have a rational way of reopening the country rather than, you know, let the pandemic take over until we all have herd immunity. Right. With a lot so of us I don't, missing. If you want to, yeah, if you want to end the show, that's fine. Or, um, I mean, I, I might mention the the kind of organizing principles of soteria and, and Go ahead, open please. dialogue. So the, the basic idea with soteria uh, and was to be with people rather than do to them. Absolutely. And, um, and you know, and so they had, it was a house and they had like six to eight residents and, and uh, a couple of staff. And uh, the original Soteria house, the, the shifts were 48 hours long because, for, you know, because then it became more like the staff was part of, you know, the living arrangement and, and right. um, um, uh, and you didn't have this disruption of, you know, when people that were, you know, really in kind of a disturbed, you know, altered mental state and confused to, to have a shift change every eight hours. Um, and uh, so like just an example, 
um, uh, one of the the stories, and there's a great book called Soteria uh, from what is it? I found it here. Through Madness to Deliverance by Lauren and uh, Lauren Moser and Voice Hendricks. Um, but one of the one of the things that happened was there's one of the residents was convinced that the mar you know he was gonna you know the Martians were kind of gonna come to this park and pick him up at you know four o'clock right. on Thursday, and the um, the normal reaction would just to be to try and talk you know talk the person out of it, and of course right. Thursday would come and go, and the person would think, oh my God, I've missed this. You know? Right. And so, but so what? What they did at Soteria is they said, "Okay, let's go to the park." Um, and they went to the park, and four o'clock came and went, and they said, "Okay, well, that didn't happen. Now, what do we, now? Now, what do we do?" Um, and another example was one of the patients, or I, excuse me, oh, forgive me. <laughs> no, no, you see, that's the point. What's the word? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, but it's. Um, I mean, patient and, and and therapy were, you know, basically forbidden words at Soteria. Um, what did they replace it with? Uh, I'm going to have to reread the whole book. Yeah, Soteria, uh, what is it? Through Madness to Deliverance. And um, so another one, one of the uh, residents was convinced they were poisoning with the food. And so what they what they what they did was okay. Well, let's go to McDonald's, and they went to McDonald's for a while. Um, so it's just like it's just practical. And if someone was in a really bad state, they would do what you know, and they were worried about them. They would you know have what they called a vigil, and they'd just be with them. And you know, this one of those things. My theory about suicide is if you're with someone. They're not going to, they can't commit suicide. They're not going to commit suicide. Right, 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 um, right, right. So, and they had basically an 80% recovery rate. Uh, and mostly without the drugs, uh, they would use um, a benzodiazepine, like, you know, those are um, uh, the class of drugs that's Valium or Clonopin right. or Xanax, uh, just to. Uh, reestablish sleep because in almost all cases, people who are quote, you know, psychotic end quote um, are, you know, uh, are sleep deprived. Um, and anybody who doesn't get sleep for long enough will, will basically go crazy. Right. Um, so then open dialogue was, a, is this program in a certain part of Lapland and uh, Finland where and it's been going on for I don't know like uh, developed seriously for four years, and they have actually eliminated schizophrenia quote schizophrenia in their section of Finland because in order to properly diagnose someone with schizophrenia they've got to have symptoms for six months, and you know in the open dialogue approach they don't, um, and their idea is that. It's it's not the the person. The problem isn't with the person. It's in the spaces between the person. And so yes. what they do is they bring everybody in that's in that person's you know orbit or environment or you know whatever family, friends, uh, schoolmates, and those kind of things. And they you know and they work things out and. Basically, they don't go to the hospital anymore. Um, and uh, now, it's, uh, you know, there have been, um, uh, you know, open di- there's a lot of open dialogue, you know, training going on around the world, including the United States. And there are various soterias that have tried to get going. And, in fact, I, you know, I was... Um, instrumental in getting one going in Alaska for a while. Uh-huh. Well, we wouldn't get a lot of friends in the, in the, in the regular medical system. I mean, that's a tremendous threat. Yeah, and it a, was a, 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 a tragic a, yeah. that it, it closed. It, it lost it yeah. I mean, for various reasons, yeah. but basically overfunding. And, it, you know, it had its ups and downs, but it was 
uh, at time, I would go to the, you know, I would, you know, I was fairly involved and I would go and you know, right. they would have house meetings every day. And, um, at some, sometimes it was just magical what was happening. There. You see, but I think it's understandable, but the first thing you have to do is let's take the word schizophrenia and strip it for what it is. Right. Well, you notice how it, we say diagnosed with schizophrenia. Yes. But schizophrenia doesn't exist. It's made up of a variety of actual behaviors. If you believe the normal bullshit that all people believe, you're normal. But if you make up your own bullshit, you're delusional. Well, that's the definition of a delusion is a fixed belief without any evidence that not enough other people believe in. Right. That not enough people. So the minute you make up your own, if you're really creative in creating bullshit, and usually it's not done on the creativity, it's done on the desperate circumstances, you're crazy. There is no schizophrenia that causes the delusion. Right? Hallucinations fascinate me because they're the other big so-called symptom. Um, uh, I don't know how you do hallucinate, although everybody I've ever worked with who hallucinated began hallucinating, again, under very desperate circumstances. And I write about some of these individuals in my book. I had a woman I worked with for about 10 years. And when I first started to work with her, I was still under the belief that schizophrenia was a disease. And, and, and she once said to me, the voices tell me to do this and that. And I'd say, there are no voices. And she got up and looked at me, and as she walked out the door, she said, the voices say you don't exist. (laughs) And I thought that was fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. So, I'm sorry. (laughs) It was, and we worked at it for years. She had voices that told her she was a piece of shit had caused the Holocaust. Her mother was a a fanatically religious individual who told Mm. her, you're the cause of the misery in the world. And when she read about the Holocaust, she now connected that to herself. But she also wrote poetry. And the voices also told her she was an immortal poetess. And ultimately, she told me she'd never give up the voices because they're the only ones who like the poetry. That's funny. (laughs) So they but it's were very true. useful. Yeah. So are you familiar with the Hearing Voices Network? No, I'm not. I know that. I looked them up because I, I uh, through, uh, you know, I think it was Al Galves uh, uh, made me aware of them. They were all over so, the world. Yeah, well, they started, they're very uh, prominent in uh, the UK, although they started in the Netherlands. And it was someone challenged a psychiatrist on a, on this radio show and he decided to do a study and it turns out that about 10% of the population hear voices. Now the, the, the uh, incidence rate of people diagnosed with schizophrenia I think is about 1% and the difference is the people that, get, that hear voices that got, get diagnosed with schizophrenia are the ones where the voices cause them problems, you know, in society. So right. it's actually quite normal to hear voices. And it's not like, um, you know, where you have thoughts in your head and stuff. It's people hear voices. Um, but you see, here, and so- there's a piece of psychology here. I want to connect to that. Most of my thinking is dialogue. I'm always having a dialogue in my head. But it's not, it's but not that. But what happens if the dialogue for reason, one reason or another, becomes actually audible. And right. I'd like to understand why, for 90% of people, the dialogue remains in the head, so you know it's not an actual voice. And for 10%, it becomes audible. And I don't think that's a disease. I, I can't imagine what it is, but it's some kind of mechanism that I don't think anybody has looked at as a mechanism. It's only a disease. I mean, it's craziness. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, when you talk about that, I, I think about, you know, how people uh, get 
disassociative identity disorder, which, you know, people, is, it's commonly called multiple personality disorder. And it's all, I, it's always the same. I, I, I always forget the age range, but a young child who's experiencing, um, you know, pretty severe abuse, you know, right. physical abuse, including possible sexual abuse. Yes. And um, so what they do to adapt to that is they basically withdraw to another place in their mind so that the abuse is happening to someone else. It's not right. happening to them. And it's a very creative uh, and successful solution. But then what happens is that that becomes a way to deal with different kinds of situations. And then exactly. People, you know, and they, be, and they have... Uh, they're called alters, these different personalities, and, and especially when one alter doesn't know what the other alter is doing, um, then it just becomes very, very chaotic uh, right. life. Right, right. Very confusing, so very it, chaotic. I, I wonder if, right, and so this idea of hearing voices, you know, there's some similar process. I mean, obviously, um, you know, voice. You know what we hear is um, is not is not reality. It's you know it's vibrations in the atmosphere that hit our eardrum that then convert right. to certain signals in your brain that we interpret as uh-huh. you know noise and voices. And so somehow that process happens. Um, you know, with people, you know, without the actual uh, vibrations. And uh, so I think that's what you're talking about. Well, uh, but there's another issue there, too. It's a developmental issue. Piaget, who's one of my intellectual heroes, talks about four stages of intellectual development. In the first stage, the first two years of life, the sensory mode of thinking, children talk to their toys. And the toys can talk back. They'll hold dialogues. So to me, in many ways, it's like a developmental issue. Uh, Dreams for young children are very real. And even for adults. Um, They can be very, very real. And then you wake up and you can't quite discern the difference between the dream. Did it really happen or was it just a dream? These mechanisms are somehow involved, I believe. And again, I've never done any research on this. I'd love somebody to do it, pick up on it. Is it a piece left over from early childhood without being critical of the fact that all of us have elements within our behavior where we really don't become more operationalized? We don't go from one stage to the other. In some areas, we're all babies, and then other areas where we develop, we're more sophisticated and intellectual and, and have skills different than we had when we were children. That piece fits in here, too, I think, where a child is so seriously abused and terrified that they use the mechanisms of early thinking and early functioning and retain them. I can't prove that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, and I don't know. I mean, a lot of people find the voices useful. You know, they're supportive and they're useful. And so I, I don't know that it, it has to be as a result of some necessarily bad experience or being terrified. I, I just don't know. I don't know either. But this conversation is a terrific conversation. Uh, and I'm getting another phone call and it's interfering with my hold on one second call you right back I'll call you right back my brother I was talking about him before he must have heard me he's up in Boston he just called so when I hang up I'll call him right back Um, and I I lost my place. The computer, when the phone ring, it goes through the computer. And now I got to find out where my show is. <laughs> it's 
sometimes yeah, I ha- oh, here so, it is. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, oh no no, go ahead. No no, I, I'm I, I've done it. <laughs> I'm more interested in hearing from you. Yeah, well, um, one and, and we can end any time. But one other thing that came up uh, when you were talking is there another couple of uh, I think really terrific books that I could recommend. Go ahead. I, I don't know if you know them. One is called Schizophrenia, a uh, what is it? A, a medical delusion. A medical delusion by. Uh, and, and I Mary that was Boyle. Mary Boyle who spoke at the right. nineteen two thousand three or four conference. And it was my belief she should have left the question mark off. Ah. Well, In other words, the title is Schizophrenia, A Medical Delusion? It should have been right. an exclamation point. <laughs> Schizophrenia, yeah. A Medical Delusion. <laughs> yeah. Well, she answers yeah. the question. And yes. one of the things that really, and I, some of it was over my head, but um, the thing that, one of the things that really struck me was that it's not even valid as a classification because you no. cannot determine you cannot determine schizophrenia from not schizophrenia. Absolutely. And, and you know, and so it just demonstrates the uh, scientific uh, bankruptcy of of the yeah. diagnosis. And the other one is uh, how to become a schizophrenic. By John Modrow, M-O-D-R-O-W. I read um, that years ago. I'm going to reread it and see if I can. Con- I don't know he's he's still around. Maybe I can put him on the air. And, and, he and, is yeah, that still was around. A great he's book. a very strange individual, I would say. But anyway, I I recently, you know, within the last year or two, uh, have had contact with him. Um, but it's a terrific book. I know. And I'm going to recommend it. In fact, I have to make a list of other books and put them on, do a show about putting putting them on the air for people to read. Um, I have mentioned a number of times in a number of broadcasts about voice hearers. Go online, Google it, um, and you know, and then become involved. Uh, go to isepp.org. Uh, go to Mad in America. It's .org, isn't it, or .com? What Mad in America? Yeah, uh, Whitaker's dot uh, com. Uh, dot com. It, yeah, yeah, I can hang it. Yeah, because because these yeah. are very important um, places for people to to get information that they simply don't get in the twenty four hour barrage of their television set telling them. Uh, there's one ad that's now on television that makes me maddened. It's a woman who was a, a very attractive young woman walking around. She's depressed, and so she, has, she carries with her a paper mask with a smile on it. And she said she decided to stop in the air. She stopped pretending not to be depressed, and she goes to her doctor, who gives her a second drug to take, Fine. which is very common. And nobody says to her, the reason you're still depressed, because it's not an illness, and the drug you're taking is failing to change you in any way to make you feel better. So now we'll throw another drug on top of that. And the ad right. makes me crazy. And there's yeah, no way because they have billions have. of dollars to, to, to promote these ads. Right. So in terms of books, um, uh, psychrights.org, uh, down uh, org. Down towards the bottom, there's oh, about uh, 15 books, book uh, covers uh, there. And then down below that is um, a uh, suggested reading list. Uh, and I realize I should put your book on it. Um, I was going to ask so, you. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, I haven't been keeping it up as much as... Uh, I used to, but anyway, there are, um, it's a pretty, I think, big list of uh, of books that I think are really good to read about all this stuff. Absolutely. Now I understand suddenly why my wife came in and motioned a golf swing. I bet you the golf courses have just been opened here in Florida. 
Oh, Nirvana. <laughs> well, good. Better get to it after the day of greeting. Yeah. Oh, right. Listen, Jim, thanks a million for calling in. You bet. And take care and stay healthy. Where are you? Are you still in Maui or are you still in uh, back in Alaska? No, I'm, quote, stuck, end quote, in Maui. So it's... Uh... It's about, I can't imagine a better place to be stuck. I get to walk, I get to walk on, we face on a golf course, and I get to walk on the closed golf course down, you know, down to uh, the beach pretty much every day. So uh, it's lovely. Pretty, pretty good deal. I'm very lucky. Yeah. Yeah, I feel I'm lucky where I am too here in uh, Palm Beach County. We've had the third number of cases, largest cases in Florida, but still a couple, few thousand, very few deaths, and apparently they're going down because the social isolation is working. Um, and and uh, you know, it's uh, it's not the same as I have a friend that lives in New York, a wonderful man, who uh, three times a day, including sometimes at midnight, gets up and paces the streets of New York because he's in an apartment. Right. And it's, it's, a, hor- it's a horror. And, you know, he's, he's not hungry, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, but he's isolated, terribly, terribly, terribly isolated. All right. Again, thank you. I'm going to close the show now. You tomorrow, tomorrow, I'm going to open my... Uh, I'll open a show. I'm not going to make a formal presentation. I'll send out notices that anybody who would like to call in and share their story about what the psychological effects of the coronavirus are on them so that we can, again, try to expose the lie that if you're really anxious and depressed and feeling hopeless, you are not crazy. This is a reaction to a terribly stressful, awful situation. And if you want to take drugs, take them. But don't think you're taking a medicine. So I, I set that show up, and we'll see what happens. Goodbye. Take care. Aloha. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.